everyone, and welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, November 10th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, off-year elections that could be telling for 2024. The House holds a hearing on anti-Israel bias in the UN. Republican presidential candidates debate for a third time. And I'll be speaking with Grace Bidalek, director of The Dissident Project, about the rise of anti-Semitism on college campuses. All that and more coming up on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Just a reminder, everyone, to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. Help them put it into their phones if you're able to snag them for a couple of minutes. Remember, we are the only podcast that I know of bringing you all of the news from the last week in Washington, D.C., and I'm just going to present you the facts. You decide what to do with them. So if that's your cup of tea and you think someone else might like it, make sure to tell them about the D.C. Debrief. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief for this week. Israel latest. As the war in Gaza rages on, House Republicans on Wednesday held a hearing into what they say is bias against Israel in the United Nations. That's long been a complaint of Israel, by the way. They say the U.N. is often overly critical of Israeli actions to defend itself and that they side with Palestinians in these matters. CBN's Dale Hurd has more on the hearing. The hearing focused on one agency in particular where U.N. employees openly celebrated the October 7th attack on Israel. In its new report, the group U.N. Watch documents how 20 teachers and staff members with UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, rejoiced over the massacre of Israeli civilians in their social media accounts. Allah is great. Allah is great. Reality surpasses our wildest dreams, posted UNRWA Gaza teacher Osama Ahmed. U.N. Watch Executive Director Hillel Neuer told the Subcommittee on Global Health, Global Human Rights and International Organizations that the celebration of the attack by UNRWA staff should not have been a surprise, considering what was already known about the agency's association with Hamas. UNRWA staff regularly call to murder Jews and create teaching materials that glorify terrorism encourage martyrdom, demonize Israelis, and incite anti-Semitism. Middle East expert Dr. Jonathan Schanzer. UNRWA employees have been exposed as members of Hamas, the terrorist group that slaughtered 1,400 Israelis in cold blood on October 7th. This might explain how UNRWA's educational materials refer to Israel as the enemy, teach math by counting martyred terrorists, and include the phrase jihad as one of the doors to paradise in grammar lessons. Neuer says that since the Hamas massacre, the overwhelming majority of statements by U.N. bodies and officials have pointed the finger at Israel, following a pattern there in which Israel is held to a standard not applied to any other nation. At the U.N. General Assembly last year, there was one resolution on Iran, one on Syria, one on North Korea, and 15 on Israel. Zero resolutions were adopted on China, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and 180 other countries. There is no question that certain U.N. member states, bodies, and the General Assembly have a negative, disproportionate focus on Israel and routinely support singling it out more than any other country in the world. In 2022 alone, UNRWA received $344 million in funding from the United States. This for an agency that experts say includes staff members 
who clearly support Hamas. Dale heard CBN News. Meanwhile, Israel has agreed to daily four-hour humanitarian pauses in specific locations in the fighting in northern Gaza. That's according to National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. Netanyahu uh, also said that that will be the case. However, he did note that it will be very specifically targeted into areas where civilians need to get out. Uh, the four-hour humanitarian pauses began on Thursday, and the Israelis have informed the U.S. there will be no military operations in those specific areas for the duration of the pauses. But Netanyahu wanted to make sure that the international community, the United States and the United Nations, understood there will be no ceasefire in Israel, despite calls from some, until all of the hostages are freed from Gaza. Tuesday election recap. Democrats are crowing over the results of Tuesday's off-year elections that some believe serve as a bellwether for 2024. Democrats scored major victories in a governor's race in Kentucky, huge wins in Virginia, and abortion rights activists are celebrating a big win in Ohio. Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka with the details and what it could mean for Republicans and the pro-life movement next year. Incumbent Democrat Governor Andy Bashir held on for a second term in deep red Kentucky, besting Republican Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Just look at what we were up against. Five super PACs. My opponent's super PAC. Mr. McConnell's super PAC. Rand Paul's super PAC. The Club for Growth. The Republican Governors Association. All running ads full of hate and division. And you know what? And I ask that you pray for Governor Bashir and his team and for all of our Commonwealth. Because at the end of the day, win, lose, or draw, what ultimately matters is that we know that Christ is on the throne. Bashir used a record of economic growth combined with his pandemic and disaster management to win a second term over the Donald Trump endorsed Cameron. In Ohio, a crucial abortion vote known as Issue 1. Voters enshrined abortion rights into the state's constitution, preventing an outright ban of the procedures in the state. Tonight, we've spoken and we stand here united as Ohioans in a historic victory across the state. We're going to bed knowing that we own our own bodies. Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, responded to the results, saying in part in a statement, quote, there have been many valuable lessons learned from issue one. Moving forward in states where abortion will be on the ballot in 2024, pro-life, pro-woman coalitions will need to devote more resources to compassionate pro-life messages for women and their children, combating the campaign of fear from the other side. And in Virginia, Republicans failed to take total control of the state government branches. Democrats held the Senate and flipped the Republican-controlled House of Delegates. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin had campaigned heavily, promising a ban on abortions after 15 weeks if Republicans gained full legislative control. I think this is a chance for Virginia to prove to be a leader, to bring people together around one of the most difficult topics in America. The results could mean voters are still very motivated by the overturning of Roe versus Wade, even though President Biden's current poll numbers paint a bleak picture for Democrat prospects. South Carolina Republican Nancy Mays posted on social media, quote, we can't save lives if we can't win elections. 
If pro-life Republicans want to actually save lives, they have to learn to listen to women and talk about abortion and contraception. And even though it was an off-year election, it still proved to be very costly, with Democrats outspending Republicans in almost every major race. And in Ohio, more than $40 million combined was spent on the abortion issue. Third GOP debate. Five Republican presidential candidates not named Donald Trump gathered together on a stage in Miami to elbow one another for a distant second place in the current GOP race to the White House. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley appear to be separating themselves from the rest of the pack, which includes Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie and Senator Tim Scott. Those were the five participants on Tuesday night. This week, Governor Ron DeSantis got a big boost in terms of an endorsement from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. With your help, a year from now, Ron DeSantis will beat Joe Biden and be the next president of the United States of America. Meanwhile, Donald Trump was finally endorsed by Arkansas governor and his former press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. The debate also featured a lot of discussion on Israel's war with Hamas in Gaza. CBN's Mark Martin has more on that. Frontrunner former President Donald Trump was once again absent from the debate stage, leaving the candidates to focus on foreign policy and the U.S. relationship with Israel and its war with Hamas. Candidates responding to the question what they would urge Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to do at this moment. I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. They're terrorists. They're massacring innocent people. They would wipe every Jew off the globe if they could. The first thing I said to him when it happened was I said, finish them. Finish them. America is here no matter what it is you need at any time to preserve the state of Israel. Remember that Hamas's main goal is to get rid of Israel. Vivek Ramaswamy sending a message of support tempered by an America first stance. What I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. The candidates also making it clear that Iran is the greater threat to Israel and the world. You actually have to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran and not simply their proxies. We need to be very clear-eyed to know there would be no Hamas without Iran. There would be no Hezbollah without Iran. Ramaswamy painted the former U.N. ambassador as an extension of a generation that led America into costly Middle East wars. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's going to put this country first, or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? Haley firing back. I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. The Republican presidential hopefuls also addressed the surge in anti-Semitism since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Several said they would pressure college administrations to crack down and take action against foreign students who support Hamas. I was the first presidential candidate to say, if you are here on a student visa as a foreign national, you're making common cause with Hamas, I'm canceling your visa and I'm sending you home. No questions asked. Any campus that allows for anti-Semitism and hate to allow students to encourage terrorism, mass murder, mass murder and genocide, you should lose your federal funding today, period. If the KKK were doing this, 
every college president would be up in arms. This is no different. You should treat it exactly the same. Anti-Semitism is just as awful as racism, and we've got to make sure they're protected. Whoever the Republican nominee ends up being will be taking on what appears to be a weakened President Biden if some early battleground polls are to be believed. CBN News Chief Political Analyst David Brody on some headwinds facing the president's re-election hopes. Throughout his presidency, Joe Biden's poll numbers have not been great, and this past week it got even worse. The respected New York Times-Siena College poll shows if the election were held today, Biden would lose a general election matchup to former President Trump in these five key battleground states. He trails by 11 in Nevada, six in Georgia, five in Arizona, four in Pennsylvania, and five in Michigan. Bradley Honan heads a top Democrat polling firm. I think these are very, very worrying numbers that Democrats have to take uh, very seriously. Across the board, the numbers are bad. Voters say they trust Trump over Biden on the economy by more than 22 points. 71% say the 80-year-old Biden is too old to be effective, including 54% of Democrats. Only 39% say the same about the 77-year-old Trump. Biden's support is also down quite a bit among Gen Z, Hispanic, and black voters, all key parts of his base. Top Democrat pollster and strategist Cornell Belcher says all of this is being overblown. Look, I, I worked on both of the Obama campaigns in, two, in 2011. Um, it was the same polling uh, that had Obama, you know, down in multiple battleground states losing to Mitt Romney. Belcher also points to other factors. Nobody knows quite what the electorate makeup will look like. He adds the positive numbers Trump sees could be as good as it gets, which is good news for Biden. He's at his ceiling. Biden is at his floor. Um, and I think that is a difference. Talk now has turned to whether Biden should step down. But what are Democrat insiders saying? There's a lot of chatter right now in Democratic circles expressing real concern about about this polling. I even have people in my ear whispering about whether it's time to dump Biden and find another nominee. David Axelrod, a key architect of President Obama's White House runs, suggested Biden may want to think of stepping aside, writing the following on social media, quote, this will send tremors of doubt through the party. Only Joe Biden can make this decision. What he needs to decide is whether that is wise, whether it's in his best interest or the country's. Yes, there also is risk associated with changing course now, but there is a lot of leadership talent in the Democratic Party poised to emerge. Look, I, I love David. He's, he's a friend. But, but I can't believe the statement by David because he knows better. Belcher says Axelrod knows that campaigns are built to solve problems, and that should be the focus. You've got to cobble back together and energize these younger, more diverse voters to engage in the process, or you have an electorate that benefits Republicans. That cobbling back needs to happen soon, or it may be too late. David Brody, CBN News, Washington. Government shutdown latest. Are we careening towards another government shutdown? We thought we were getting one for sure back in September until Speaker Kevin McCarthy made a deal with Democrats to avoid the shutdown. 
And that agreement ultimately ended his speakership. Now enter Speaker Mike Johnson. He's getting it now. He's getting an understanding of the difficulties McCarthy faced as the leader of the dysfunctional House GOP. And if you thought there was going to be a grace period, you may not be getting one of those. With the government shut down a week away, Republicans are no closer to passing year-long individual appropriations bills on the House floor. And Speaker Johnson is considering a number of alternatives for a continuing resolution. Now, it does appear this time as if everyone in the conference agrees that a shutdown in the wake of the speakership battle and the damage it did to the House GOP brand is not something anyone wants. But there is no plan in place yet on a temporary stopgap measure that would keep the government open through the beginning of next year. Republican Congressman Max Miller of Ohio responding to leadership pulling final passage of two year-long appropriations bills on Thursday called his party, quote, embarrassing and, quote, incredibly upsetting. Some of the amendments that Republicans opposed in these year-long appropriations bills that were pulled on Thursday didn't have a whole lot to do with the appropriations themselves, amendments that were being tacked on. Some with anti some of those amendments, anti-abortion amendments that are difficult for Republicans in democratically controlled areas to vote for. Uh, others like funding the FBI's future new headquarters or denying federal money for that, reducing the salary of White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre to one dollar. Uh, uh, those are some of the amendments that were being offered uh, attached to these uh, appropriations bills that ended up going nowhere. Republican Thomas Massey of Kentucky lamenting the state of affairs. Well, I think there's a honeymoon period here. I'm not sure how long it lasts, maybe 30 days with, the, with what's going on on the floor today. I think that indicates the honeymoon might be shorter than we thought. And um, every time the CR expires, the speaker's putting his head in the lion's mouth. Speaker Johnson, meanwhile, floating the idea of a multi-tiered continuing resolution that would feature two funding expiration dates early next year. There's nothing magical or, or mysterious about it. It would just be effectively two phases. You would do one part, uh, a, a subset of the bills, uh, by uh, a December date and the rest of it by a January date. Um, the other alternative is a CR that would go into January with certain stipulations. However, Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries said he's expecting a single clean CR that will keep uh, that will keep government funding at the current 2023 levels. House Democrats are not going to pay a single right wing ransom demand. We've not done it in the past. We're not going to do it today. We're not going to do it tomorrow. As House Republicans struggle to coalesce on these outstanding appropriations bills, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said they will prepare their own continuing resolution and stresses anything from the House must have bipartisan support. I implore Speaker Johnson and our House Republican colleagues to learn from the fiasco of a month ago. Hard right proposals, hard right slashing cuts, hard right poison pills, that have zero support from Democrats will only make a shutdown more likely. I hope they don't go down that path in the week to come. The House and Senate are both out for Veterans Day. It's expected Speaker Johnson will release details of his plans for ACR at some point before Monday. China nukes report. Next week, President Biden is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping at a San Francisco forum. Right now, that meeting is expected to take place on Wednesday. It will be their first meeting in a year. But a new Pentagon report shows China's nuclear arsenal is growing faster than the U.S. realized. 
National security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more. According to this intelligence, China has more than 500 nuclear warheads in its arsenal as of May. That's 100 more than last year and puts Beijing on pace to field more than 1,000 by 2030. A rapid expansion that has the U.S. taking note. They're becoming a great power. They don't want to be checkmated by our nuclear forces and they want to therefore be in our league. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution says China still has a ways to go before its stockpile rivals that of the U.S. or Russia. He adds, while the buildup isn't a surprise, he does find the budding partnership between Beijing and Moscow concerning. We always had a framework and we assumed that it was okay for Russia and the United States to each have equal numbers of different types of weapons. And now you have a problem because if China comes into the equation, and China and Russia are strategic partners, and we let each of the three have the same number of weapons, now it could sort of feel like a two to one, the United States getting you know, uh, outmuscled or outgunned. O'Hanlon says China's military rise will likely require new arms treaties, or at least greater transparency. Meanwhile, the Pentagon report also shows a sharp increase in risky behavior by the PRC in the air. In the last two years, we've had as many incidents with the Chinese in the South China Sea and environment as in the previous decade. Between the fall of 2021 and fall of 2023, the DOD documented more than 180 instances of dangerous air intercepts against U.S. aircraft. One of the most recent happening at the end of October when a Chinese fighter flew recklessly close to a U.S. bomber. And the bottom line is that, in many cases, this type of operational behavior can cause accidents, and dangerous accidents can lead to inadvertent conflict. This news comes as President Biden prepares to meet with Chinese leader Xi Jinping this weekend in California. The two are expected to announce the resumption of military communication channels, a move seen as an attempt to stabilize the relationship between the world's two largest powers and lower the risk of a military misunderstanding. Caitlin Burke, CBN News, Washington. Protecting kids on social media. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing this week on protecting young people from the dangers and harms of social media. One of the witnesses was former Meta executive Arturo Behar. He called on Congress to act to protect teens from harmful and unwanted content. I researched the problem, vetted the numbers, and informed Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and other executives. It's been two years since I left. And these are the conclusions I have come to. One, Meta knows the harm that kids experience on their platform. And the executives know that their measures fail to address it. Two, there are actionable steps that Meta could take to address the problem. And three, they are deciding time and time again to not tackle these issues. Behar said Meta leadership disregarded his research and rejected his recommendations for making Facebook and Instagram safer. He also said some of the tools that had previously been put in place to protect children had been rolled back. Research finds that one in eight children aged 13 to 15 years old experienced some form of unwanted sexual advances in the past seven days on Instagram. Democratic Chairman Richard Blumenthal and Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn are co-sponsoring a bill they reintroduced back in May called the Kids Online Safety Act, which would establish guidelines to protect children on social media platforms. 
Senate Judiciary on Supreme Court Ethics. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee abruptly adjourned a meeting on Thursday without holding an expected vote on subpoenas for two conservatives who have helped arrange luxury travel and other benefits for Supreme Court justices. At least that's according to recent reporting. The panel's Democratic chairman, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, gaveled the session out after Republicans on the committee made clear that they would call for subpoena votes on a bunch of Democratic officials and attach a number of amendments, multiple dozens of amendments, in the in the hopes of slowing down these planned subpoenas for Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow and conservative activist Leonard Leo. Lindsey Graham, the top Republican on the panel, warned the majority Democrats that the hearing would be contentious if it continued. Recent reporting has stated that Crow and Leo helped fund lavish trips for certain conservative justices, specifically Justice Clarence Thomas. Republicans believe Senate Democrats are simply attacking conservatives and promise to gum up the works with dozens of amendments that would have taken all day. Republicans are also against Congress putting ethical standards in place for Supreme Court justices, saying it is up to the court to decide their own ethical standards. Democrats believe it's Congress's job to do it if the Supreme Court won't. Joe Manchin says enough. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who has frustrated his Democratic colleagues for not exactly being a reliable member of the left, he's about as far right as you can get to the left. He announced that he will not seek re-election in the deeply red state. What I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. This certainly puts the Democrats' concerns for protecting their majority in the Senate into real light. It's looking like a bad map for, for Democrats in the 2024 Senate races. Republicans now eyeing West Virginia and a number of, of other states where Democrats are not expected to win or are withdrawing from these races. There is concern that some of the more centrist Democrats like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin leaving Congress, leaving the Senate. Sinema is trailing behind in her race behind two other uh, nominees running as an independent. There is concern by Democrats that some of the consensus makers, some of the some of the, the folks who try to get Republicans and Democrats to agree on certain issues will be going away, creating a more contentious Senate. We'll see how it all plays out in the elections next year. But Senator Joe Manchin, one of those senators in a deep red state, a Democrat who oftentimes voted against his party, a thorn in the side for Democrats. However, there is concern that losing him will mean their majority in the Senate goes away. Beef prices up, mortgages down. According to data released this week by the Agriculture Department, beef prices are higher right now than they were during the pandemic, at an all-time high, crossing $8 a pound on average. The previous high was $7.90. That's after the southwestern U.S. saw the lowest rainfall it has seen in 1,200 years during the 2020-21 season. That's according to a study published last year. Now, while this dry spell has since eased, inventories of hay are still low and feed costs remain too high for some cattle farmers to afford, which means a whittled down national herd size that is now at a 61 year low. So while the price of beef may be going up in your grocer's freezer, some relief in the housing market this week, as Freddie Mac reported the largest one week drop in mortgage rates since a year ago, down from 7.76% last week to 7.5% this week. 
Now, that 7.5% is still higher than the 7.08% on 30-year fixed mortgages we saw last year, and still far, far higher than the upper threes and lower 4% that we had seen in place for the better part of a decade. Unfortunately, analysts say the persistently sticky inflation means people are spending more on monthly bills and accruing more debt in other areas with less money to buy a home, meaning fewer people in the market. But for those that are in the market, analysts say a lower interest rate could spur some buyers to get off the sidelines and get back into the housing market. And that's your debrief for this week. And now let's get into our deep dive here on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Well, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing this week talking about anti-Semitism, free speech on college campuses and universities, especially since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. And joining me to talk a little bit more broadly about anti-Semitism, free speech on college campuses and universities is Grace Bidalek. She's the director of the Dissident Project. We're going to find out more about that in just a second. Grace, thank you for joining me on the DC Debrief. How are you? I'm so good. John, thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so glad to be here. It's a pleasure to, to talk to you. And this is obviously a very important topic right now. Uh, Anti-Semitism on college campuses has been growing. There has long been, I think, especially among conservatives, a worry that free speech on college campuses and universities has been in a serious and steep decline over the last few decades, really. And certainly the the uh, the the war in in the Middle East with uh, Israel and Hamas has only exacerbated that it seems the White House and the Department of Education put out a warning this week to colleges and universities that they needed to do more. Can you tell us how bad is it right now on college campuses and universities? How serious is this problem? Yeah, John, I think uh, certainly we have to to uh, uh, separate the idea of freedom of speech with the idea of terrorism, right? Um, and and supporting terrorism. Uh, writ large. So um, in New York City, the situation is is fairly dire. Um, that's where I'm based. You know, students at Columbia University um, beat an Israeli student with a stick, you know, after he confronted a woman tearing down pictures of, of host- hostages. And then, of course, at Cooper Union College, as was wild, widely reported, Jewish students were, were barricaded uh, in a library as, as protesters were banging on the door, um, chanting, you know, things like long live the Intifada. Um, well, of course, the uh, incredibly courageous Laura Sparks, uh, the university president, es- escaped from, through a back door, right? Um, and of course, the the list of participating campuses when it comes to uh, pro-Palestine rallies uh, goes on and on and on. We've got Stanford, we've got NYU, we've got Northwestern, we've got Georgetown, uh, George Washington University, Berkeley. Um, the list continues ad nauseum and includes, unfortunately, uh, my dear alma mater. Um, one of the protest signs uh, at Michigan read, there is only one solution, Intifada revolution. And of course, we understand um, what that particular uh, particular phrase harkens back to. Um, and so I think I think the uh, the situation on college campuses is incredibly dire. FBI Director Chris Ray at a hearing last week said that even though Jewish people make up a little under two and a half percent of the American population, they are on the receiving end of sixty percent of the threats of religious based um, religious based threats uh, against against people in America. So this has been that didn't just happen within the last few months, right? This this has been something that's ongoing for a long time. But have have we seen this anti-Semitism specifically on college campuses grow significantly since the start of the war? Or has this always been there, just maybe kind of on the back burner? 
you know, I think it's probably been there on the back burner, um, but we have seen people become more brazen about it. Um, I think that there have been more uh, visible attacks on, on Jewish students and there is more sort of discomfort among uh, Jewish students now um, that, that people are emboldened, right? And then of course, on, on, on the large scale, we see reports of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. Uh, spiked 300% year over year um, the, the week after uh, the week after the October 7th attack. Um, you know, I live again in New York City where one in four people is a Jew. Um, and one of the most beautiful things about New York City, and I truly mean this, um, is the fact that the religious communities in New York are so vibrant and so visible. And so, you know, you'll see, uh, 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 I don't know, an Orthodox Jewish community in uh, East Williamsburg uh, on Shabbat uh, going to, to pick up a challah from the bakery down the street or um, smells, the smells in East Williamsburg are beautiful. Or of course, like on the Upper West Side or on the East Side at Park Avenue Synagogue, um, you'll see uh, uh, young Jewish people wearing kippot and tzitzit um, and, and be, you know, visibly uh, celebrating their Jewish heritage and their faith. Um, and more and more Jewish friends and Jewish colleagues um, are feeling as if they have to hide their Jewish identity, um, which I think is just um, an incredible tragedy. What is it that makes it so difficult for colleges and universities to rein in this type of behavior? Hmm. I think that's a really interesting question. I think um, We've seen these these college groups are uh, the same college groups that um, in 2020 were really promoting uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter, right? The they were promoting um, the idea of uh, this sort of this sort of new lexicon, this uh, Marxist, for lack of a better word, lexicon that has been really popularized. Um, specifically in intellectual circles where, um, you know, uh, it's the language of the oppressor and the oppressed. It's the language of uh, Patrice Cullors and Ibram X. Kendi. And we shouldn't be surprised, unfortunately, um, that that sort of ideology uh, has led us to this moment, right? It's taken us to its to to this logical end uh, where the, you know, typically comforting platitudes of progressive identity politics, again, the simplistic uh, language of oppressor and oppressed, have actually led to terrorism, have led to violence, and now are leading to a rash of anti-Semitism. Um, you know, people calling Israel and Israelis and Jews in particular uh, colonizers and oppressors. Though you know, none of those, none of those, uh, none of those uh, uh, classifications are are historically accurate. Well, and that kind of dovetails into my next question. Do you think a lot of the students and maybe even some of the faculty members, but the people who are engaged in these anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian arguments, I mean, there's obviously a heart that goes out to the Palestinian civilians and the children who are caught up in the violence. And, and certainly you want to you want to speak for their rights and for their health and for their safety. But um, it seems as though maybe there is a conflation between being pro-Palestinian civilian safety for, for, for all of them, while at the same time um, understanding the, the nuances of what's been happening there in the Middle East. Do you, do you believe that there is an understanding by most of the protesters, some of the protesters, it might be hard to pin down a specific answer to this question, but do you, do you, th do you see that there maybe is a, a struggle understanding the nuance of the situation there? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Um, I think, 
you know, unfortunately, we see this sort of logical incongruence, incongruency when, when, you know, we're confronted with groups like Queers for Palestine, right? Like, there's no understanding about, you know, what Hamas, uh, uh, what living under the jackboot of Hamas actually looks like for Palestinian civilians. And yes, of course, you know, our hearts go out to um, Palestinian civilians who are caught up in, in, uh, in the line of fire. Um, that is, it's egregious. Every human life is worth exactly the same, right? Um, but again, these sort of pro-Palestinian protesters and protests have done no work to separate themselves from Hamas. Um, and so I think, you know, if these pro-Palestinian uh, protests would like any sort of, uh, you know, uh, legitimacy uh, in the eyes of people who care about their Jewish brothers and sisters, to separate themselves from Hamas and to say, no, I'm not, I'm not pro Hamas. I am, I am pro Palestinian people. I am pro uh, Gazan children. Um, I think that that, I think that that is an entirely different argument. And to be completely honest with you, I think that that necessitates that people be pro Israel. Can Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you do with the Dissident Project? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, the Dissident Project is a speakers bureau for young people who have escaped authoritarian governments. So we have wonderful dissidents who work with us from all over the world, from places like Hong Kong, Venezuela, North Korea, um, uh, Cuba, Iran, Afghanistan, um, and uh, we are we are our 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 you know our real focus is to find them gigs within the American high school system. Um, we see that there's a sort of historical amnesia, right? There's a lack of understanding um, of the impact of authoritarian across the globe, uh, authoritarianism across across the globe, um, and also a lack of understanding um, of the importance of our American freedoms. And so, by hearing from these dissidents one on one, we're really hoping um, that the younger generations of Americans will wake up from this sort of apathy that we see uh, taking over that population, um, and will. Uh, become uh, active um, active members of society uh, fighting for uh, the, preserva the preservation of American rights. Last question for you here. What can the federal government, Congress, the, the White House, what, what can be done from a, maybe from a more macro level from the government to try and help tamp down anti-Semitism in the US? And if we are looking specifically at college campuses, is there anything they can do looking at mm -hmm. college campuses in this regard? Well, I think we've seen the Biden administration go very wobbly over the the, the past few few weeks, in particular. Um, you know, I was I was pleasantly surprised by the the Biden administration's response um, to the terrorist attacks on October seventh. Um, initially, uh, when they came out strongly in support of Israel, um, I think unfortunately we've seen again, as I said, as anti-Semitism has risen year over year, three hundred percent. Um, in the week following the terrorist attack, we saw Kamala Harris set up a task force on, on Islamophobia um, instead of focusing um, on uh, the Jewish people who were the who were the you know the the victims of this of this terrorist attack. So really staying as pro-Israel as possible um, in their rhetoric, uh, you know, I think is um, I think is necessary, um, and refusing to kowtow to you know, other younger members of, of, uh, of Congress um, that might have them have them say otherwise. Hey, Grace, if people want to find out more about the Dissident Project, how can they go about doing that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we are at dissidentproject.org. Uh, if you would like to check out our roster of speakers or potentially bring a, a speaker to your school, um, you can check out all of our speakers there and book your event there. Um, and in addition to that, we are on both Twitter and Instagram at, at dissidentproj, P-R-O-J. Um, and you can find, uh, you know, past media hits and reels. Um, and we are, we're, we are, we're really, really excited about the sort of um, groundswell of enthusiasm that we've seen for for the project over the past few months. So um, if you'd like to be a part of that movement, please reach out. Great. Well, Grace, thank you so much for coming on the DC Debrief and talking to us more about this. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Well, looking ahead, we mentioned that President Biden and Chinese President Xi will hold their first meeting in a year on Wednesday in San Francisco at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. Also, a hearing that we're keeping an eye on for next week, the House Education Subcommittee hearing on anti-Semitism on university campuses. We were just talking to Grace about this. They're going to hold a hearing on this uh, next week. Uh, I believe this is going to be on Wednesday. Higher Education and Workforce Development Subcommittee will hold a hearing called Confronting the Scourge of Anti-Semitism on Campus. And of course, all eyes will be on Congress as Friday night at midnight is the deadline to avoid a government shutdown. So certainly that will be one of our lead stories next week, seeing as whether Speaker Mike Johnson in his first real official test as the new speaker can avoid a government shutdown this year. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. And my thanks once again to Grace Bidalic for coming on the podcast and talking with us. And folks, don't forget to tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. Again, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.